Well, I want to invite you to please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, uh, specifically to chapter 4. And if you've received a bulletin, then by now you know that the title of our message is this, Grasping the Mystery and the Magnitude of the Kingdom. It's been a few Sundays since we've been back in the Gospel of Mark, and those, will, uh, those of us who are, have been with us during the journey, you're not a guest uh, today, you've, uh, you may recall that we did an excursus on the kingdom of God, and we are preparing for what God's word has for us, and it's going to stretch us today, not just by one parable, but two that are closely tied together in our Lord's teaching And time is not on our side, and we do have a lot of ground to cover, so for the sake of time, let's tackle the text right away, and please join me as I read Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 32, which will be the focus of our study today. Starting in verse 26, it says, and he, Jesus, was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night, and he gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. I think it's fitting for us as we conclude, this is the last Sunday of 2015. And we're about to embark on a new year of ministry, and it's appropriate for us just to go to the Lord and ask him just to bless our study. Please join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, it's hard to believe that we have arrived at the last Sunday of 2015, and it's fitting that we would stop and give you thanks and praise for all that you have allowed to transpire throughout the year. Your hand of faithfulness and all that you've done in and through your church. And there's a bigger picture that only your eyes see. You are indeed the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega, you see it all. And as we consider your kingdom, Father, help us to see the awe and wonder of all that it entails. Help us to grasp the mystery and the magnitude. 2016 will be a new year of ministry And you will continue to use us in great measure as your kingdom grows, as we progress in evangelism and discipleship. So often, Father, we are short-sighted as a people, and we don't see all that is taking place, but we trust you because we know that you do. And so as we study your word and consider the reality of your master plan, we commit our time to you, and we'd ask that you would bless it, encourage us by it. Allow us to rejoice in all that you're doing. We give you thanks and praise for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 32, Jesus is going to share two parables so that you and I grasp both the mystery and the magnitude of the kingdom of God. 
and that we would also praise him for his master plan. The subject of both parables is the kingdom of God. And we knew these parables were coming. And that is why we did an excursus, seems like months ago now, but it was literally four Sundays ago. We did an excursus on the kingdom of God in preparation for our study of these passages, as well as the future passages in Mark. The phrase kingdom of God is mentioned 16 times, uh, excuse me, 14 times in the 16 chapters of the gospel of Mark and 65 times in the New Testament. And we learn that nothing was more important to our Lord than accomplishing God's will and focusing on the kingdom of God. We affirm that the presence and coming of the kingdom of God was the central message of Jesus' teaching and that he taught men and women how they might enter the kingdom of God according to Matthew 5 and 7. His miracles, according to Matthew 12, 28, were intended to display a kingdom presence. The parables in Mark 4 that we're going to study today and also in Matthew chapter 13 illustrate certain truths that God wants you and I to see about the kingdom. When Jesus taught his followers how to pray, we talked about the fact that at the very heart of his petition was thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before going to the cross, he assured his disciples that he would yet share with them the joy and the fellowship of the kingdom in Luke 22. Our Lord also promised that he would appear on earth in glory to bring the blessing of the kingdom to those whom it was prepared in Matthew 25. And we concluded that if the kingdom of God is this important to the Lord Jesus Christ, then it needs to be important to us as his followers. Amen? We need to have a grasp. And so that's why we took, it, it took some time to do the excursus and to, to see the big picture. And so many of you weren't here with us during that time. And it's fitting that we would do just a, a, a brief review of them before we tackle our parables. We talked about the universal aspect of the kingdom, the mediatorial aspect, the millennial aspect, and the eternal aspect of the kingdom of God. And those are four things that you have to remember. And four isn't that many, right? We just, we, we, we wanted to get our minds and our hearts around what the reality of the kingdom is. And the universal aspect of the kingdom of God is the rule of God over the entire universe. In this kingdom, nothing happens outside of the will of God because he's sovereign and he's in complete control. And his sovereign control is eternal. And we talked about the prophet Jeremiah in, in chapter 10, verse 10, saying he is the living God and the everlasting king. And this aspect of the kingdom of God is the broadest expression for the kingdom. His is an eternal sovereign rule everywhere over the entire creation. And we said that this aspect of the kingdom is really the umbrella aspect and that all the other aspects come underneath of it. And this is important. I don't know that I stress this enough that we're not talking about different kingdoms. We're not. We're talking about one kingdom, God's kingdom. And these are different aspects of it that we need to grasp and understand. The second aspect is the mediatorial aspect of the kingdom of God. And this is an aspect of the kingdom that Alva McLean uses in his book, The Greatness of the Kingdom. I shared with you guys that 
it, it is probably, and Dr. Vlock affirmed at the Master Seminary, he's probably one of the best resources that you can own as it relates um, to the subject. The mediatorial aspect, aspect speaks of God's rule over a temporal human kingdom. Specifically, it's used to speak of God's rule over the earth in contrast to his rule over the universe and of his indirect administration through human mediators in contrast to his direct ruling. And we talked about the mediatorial aspect uh, starting from the very beginning of creation with Adam and Eve in the garden and progressing all the way through the Old Testament through the human leaders of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through the, the mediatorial leadership and aspect of the nation of Israel. These human mediators came in the form of priests, prophets, and kings in the Old Testament. And then through David's line, a king was promised who would one day come and rule from the Davidic throne. The prophets, of course, all pointed to Christ. God's king, who will eventually rule and reign in a kingdom that will last forever. And as it relates to the church age, the church is part of the mediatorial kingdom. Though the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, the church is still mediatorially ruled by God through the appointed leadership within the church, through elders and overseers. And though there are differing views as it relates to the ecclesiastical structure um, within churches, right? There are different views. But all would agree that it's, it, there is a mediatorial aspect and that the church is led by human leaders submitted to the will of God and his leadership. Well, this brings us to the third aspect of the kingdom of God called the millennial or the messianic aspect of the kingdom. And this aspect of the kingdom of God is yet future. We said uh, it's millennial, so it's talking about a period of a thousand years. We said that this facet of God's kingdom will fulfill the great and the unconditional covenant, the Davidic covenant that's mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus Christ will physically and literally rule after his second coming. And this aspect of the kingdom of God is sometimes called the messianic kingdom because the Messiah is going to rule and reign directly during that time. And this, we said, is the kingdom that was being offered to the nation of Israel. The, the messianic kingdom, when Jesus Christ was preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. But Israel rejected the king when they spurned the Lord Jesus Christ and denied him as the Messiah. But in a future time, after the tribulation, Israel will once again be offered the kingdom. And at that time they will accept it. And Jesus will rule on the Davidic throne during the millennium before the fourth and the final aspect of the kingdom of God takes place, which is the eternal aspect of the kingdom. This aspect of the kingdom, we said, could be kind of blended or meshed together with the messianic kingdom, but that it was important to make distinctions for a couple of factors. First of all, sin and death will still occur in the millennium, in the messianic kingdom, but it will not take place 
in the eternal kingdom. Daniel 2.44 declares that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will itself endure forever. And this kingdom spoken of by Daniel comes into existence only after all the kingdoms of man are totally removed from the earth. This eternal kingdom of God does not coexist with human kingdoms. Much more was said in detail, and I want to invite you, if you have an interest, to uh, know more. You can go back and listen to the excursus, but it's good for us to have a short review. And I cannot recommend uh, McLean's book, The Greatness of the Kingdom, enough for those who would like to swim in some deep water. All of this provides a vital foundation as we continue our study of Mark's gospel. And as we start to see the kingdom of God mentioned, we want to have a grasp. We want to we know what is being talked about. You don't have to be a seminary student to understand these aspects. All you need to be is a committed Bible student, committed to God's word, and he'll help you to see the big picture of the kingdom in your Bible and that it runs from Genesis to Revelation and beyond. Well, let's turn our attention to our parables. And again, Jesus is sharing two parables so that you might grasp both the mystery and the magnitude of the kingdom and praise God for his master plan. And the first parable helps us to grasp the mystery of the kingdom's growth. And it continues with the agricultural theme that's been established throughout this chapter. It starts with the sower's role. Look at verse 26. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the oil. Oil, sorry, soil. Forgot that very important S. Uh, not on the oil, but on the soil, okay? Well, here you might already be curious. Which aspect of the kingdom uh, is Jesus referring to or does he have in mind? Is it the millennial aspect or is it the mediatorial aspect looking forward to the establishment of the church? Theologians agree that the mention of the kingdom in the gospels gets tricky because Jesus was accomplishing two purposes at the same time. He was extending the millennial and messianic kingdom to the Jews, right? Who were going to ultimately reject it. While at the same time, he was also preparing his disciples to preach the complete gospel after his death and resurrection, which would be used to establish the mediatorial aspect of the church. Our focus needs to be on what Jesus was emphasizing in the parable, and that is the growth that takes place in the kingdom is mysterious from a human perspective. Everyone in the ancient Near East understood agriculture and farming. And a, a sower was a designated worker who planted and sowed seed. And we talked about the parallels before. Sowing seed was hard work that involved traveling great distances as they would go out on large amounts of acreage and, and, and scatter the seeds. It also involved overcoming many obstacles, the scorching sun, the, the, the wind, um, rocks and stones and thorns and thistles and brush and all the things that could be an impediment, even animals. 
that would oftentimes get in the way of the sowing process. And gospel preachers are faced with similar obstacles as well. Sometimes they have to travel great distances, tirelessly preaching and spreading God's word evenly and consistently throughout the land. And Jesus modeled spiritual sowing as he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, while at the same time preparing his disciples to go out and preach. And he just taught on the parable of the soils and helped them to understand as they were going out, you remember this, right, that three out of the four soils weren't going to produce any fruit. Now, in this same day of teaching, he is helping his disciples understand that even the growth that does take place within the kingdom of God cannot be completely understood. Verse 27 reveals the mystery of God's work when it says, The sower goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. A farmer may know uh, what hinders or assists the growth process, but it by itself is, is really a mystery of life which everyone is challenged to try to explain. How do lifeless seeds that have laid dormant for decades and for centuries all of a sudden blossom? There's a story of a 2,000-year-old seed that was excavated at Masada in Israel when they were going through Herod the Great's palace, and it was germinated in 2005 and is alive today. I actually got a picture. Do we have that? Uh, pull that up. There, there is the plant. That, that came from a 2,000-year-old seed, and they actually nicknamed the plant Methuselah which um, those who know their, their Bibles know that Methuselah is the oldest, uh, uh, oldest age of, of a human recorded, 969 years old, which was in pre-flood conditions, that he lived that long. And so it's, a, it's appropriately named Methuselah. Why do some seeds grow and others do not, even when the external conditions are the same? I think we know the answer to that question, right? If God allows it to grow, it's going to grow. If it's going to have life, it's going to come from God. And this is evident in the point that our Lord is making in verse 28. The soil produces crops by itself. It's interesting in the Greek that it's, it's, it's the word um, produces or brings forth by itself is um, um, automate in the Greek, where we get our, our, our English word automatic. It produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. Now some have tried to read into this parable saying that Jesus is explaining the progressive growth of a believer here. They claim the blade speaks of a new believer and that the new believers are to be nurtured and loved as we wait for them to grow into maturity. That the head speaks of the middle stages of the Christian life. The believer is stronger and shows promise of a fruitful future, but there is much growing to do. Then the full ear or the mature grain speaks of maturity in the Christian life. That this is the stage of victory and maturation and multiplication. 
Now, initially, this might sound intriguing, and I'll admit it's, it's definitely very creative, but we have no other passage in Scripture that upholds this view. And this parable is found only in Mark. Add to the fact that Jesus is describing the growth of the kingdom, not the growth of the individual believer. It should caution us from reading this far into the text. J.C. Ryle had this to say, There are some expressions in the parable which we must not press too far, such as the sleeping and rising of the farmer and the night and day. In this, as in many of our Lord's parables, and he puts all this in caps, we must carefully keep in view the main scope and object of the whole story and not lay too much stress on lesser points. The point that Jesus is making is that the seed grows independently of man's agency. Even the soil itself does not produce the growth, but is the medium used of germinating uh, the, the power of the seed. No farmer, no scientist, no philosopher can explain how a dead and dormant seed comes to life. And there have been studies, and you can go ahead and look at the seed and talk about how when it's dropped down in the soil, how the outer husk uh, immediately begins to swell. And within 10 hours, the, the chemical composition within that seed starts to change. And oftentimes, even within 24 hours, that a small root begins to poke downward and a stalk begins to point upward towards God out of that seed. But you cannot, and we can understand that process, but you cannot give an explanation. You can't, it cannot be explained apart from God allowing it and making it happen. Similar is the mystery of the growth of the kingdom. As gospel seeds are sown throughout the world, when they are sown into the soil of fertile hearts, it is a mystery. But those seeds begin to germinate. And sometimes it happens in minutes or hours. And other times it takes months and years. But there is life within that seed and ultimately it will begin to germinate within these hearts in God's timing. And when it does, spiritual life will be produced and the kingdom of God will mysteriously continue to grow. It mysteriously grows and it also produces a harvest. Look at verse 29. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. A sickle was a farming tool that was used to harvest crops. You guys know that I grew up on a farm and my past preaching experiences have helped me learn that sometimes my illustrations don't always translate. So I did provide a picture. I wanted to just pull that up that you could get a chance to see what a sickle looked like during Jesus' time. Okay, you'll notice there was a flint. There's a, a sharp, it could be made out of rock. It could be made out of metal. And it was sharpened, right? And then they would attach it to, to a shaft or something that would, would hold it in place so that they wouldn't risk cutting their hands on it. And basically, we see the, the grain right there, the, the stalks, and they would use these things basically just like a weed whacker, just going through and just hacking things down and, and harvest. Now, when Jesus was walking through with his disciples and they accused 
the disciples of eating on the Sabbath, this is the grain that they had. They would pull this grain and then they would roll it in their hands like this and then they would eat it to get something in their stomach when they, they were hungry. That's exactly the picture right there. It's interesting in other scriptures, putting forth the sickle of the harvest often symbolizes judgment. For example, in Joel 3.13, it says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And then there's a similar expression found in Revelation 14.15 that says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. The context of this parable doesn't warrant judgment so much as it warrants growth and the mystery of God's work in expanding his kingdom. And Jesus was helping his disciples as well as us today to see how the role of the sower works in conjunction with God's faithfulness to grow his kingdom. The Apostle Paul described it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, when talking about the gospel preaching efforts of he and Apollos, what did Paul say? He said, I planted, Apollos watered, and who gave the increase? Right? God gave the increase. Though it is mysterious and we cannot fully grasp why the gospel produce, produces effects on, on one person and not another, though we cannot fully grasp why in some people who are given every possible advantage in hearing the gospel repeatedly, they still reject it. And while in other cases there are those who hear it for the very first time or with very little effort or with no encouragement, and they're born again. The takeaway for us is to grasp the fact that God is always at work behind the scenes, and it's our responsible to, uh, responsibility to be faithful sowers and harvesters. Amen? Amen. And Jesus encouraged his disciples with these words in John chapter 4 when he said, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are ripe for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. It's a team effort. God is at work. It's mysterious how he's at work behind the scenes, but there, there, there's a team effort that's taking place as it relates to those coming to faith in Christ. Some are praying for people in, in our church family right now are praying for their salvation. And then there are Christian coworkers that we don't even know that are friends with them, who are interacting with them, who are praying about the opportunity to share the gospel with them, Right? It's all taking place. And we can rejoice and praise God for his master plan as we all work together. But the question that you and I have to answer is, do you believe the field is ripe for harvest? 
Do you believe that the field is ripe for harvest? And as you consider the coming year of 2016, what is it that is going to compel you to share the gospel more this year than you did last year? I don't think any of us would say, I shared the gospel way too much last year. And this year, I just, I just need to tone it down just a little bit. I, just, I mean, I was a gospel machine last year. I was, I was putting it out, and I just, need to, I just need to probably step back a little bit. I don't think many of us would say that. Most of us would agree that we need to do more sowing and reaping in terms of our personal evangelism, but the big question that each of us has to answer is what is it that is going to encourage you? What is it? Can I offer you something that will encourage you greatly? Can I? It comes in the second parable and the second point of this message. And Jesus wants you and I to grasp the magnitude of the kingdom's greatness. The first parable helps us to grasp the mystery of the kingdom's growth. But the second helps us to see the contrast of something that starts small and then produces epic results. Look at verse 30. And Jesus begins with a setup question before providing a visual picture. He asks, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we present it? One might think that Jesus would share something grand and glorious, painting a picture of the kingdom maybe with shimmering mountaintops or considering the the raging waters and power of the ocean or perhaps the power of of a fierce animal. Instead, he opts to compare it to a simple seed. Look at the beginning of verse 31. Jesus says, it's like a mustard seed. A mustard seed? A mustard seed was a proverbial expression among the Jews for something that was very small and insignificant. Why in the world would Jesus possibly use this as an illustration to provide an image in describing the kingdom of God. I agree with J.C. Ryle that without question, Jesus was pointing to the mediatorial aspect of the kingdom of God and the coming church age that was going to start small and appear so insignificant. Listen to what Ryle says about this verse. It would be difficult to find an emblem which more faithfully represents the history of the visible church of Christ than this grain of mustard seed. Weakness and apparent insignificance were undoubtedly the characteristics of its beginning. How did its head and king come into the world? He came as a feeble infant, born in a manger of Bethlehem, which we we just celebrated. Without riches, or armies, or attendants, or power. Who were the men that the head of the church gathered around himself and appointed his apostles? 
They were poor, unlearned people, fishermen, publicans, and men of like occupations, to all appearance the most unlikely people to shake the world. What was the last public act of the earthly ministry of the great head of the church? He was crucified like a malefactor between two thieves. After having been forsaken by nearly all his disciples, betrayed by one and denied by another, What was the doctrine which the first builders of the church went forth from the upper chamber in Jerusalem to preach to mankind? It was a doctrine which to the Jews was a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. It was a proclamation that the great head of their new religion had been put to death on a cross and that notwithstanding this, they offered life through his death to the world. In all this, the mind of man can perceive nothing but weakness and feebleness. Truly, the emblem of a grain of mustard seed was verified and fulfilled to the very letter. To the eyes of man, the beginning of the visible church was contemptible, insignificant, powerless, and small. End quote. And it makes sense. Why the Lord would use this picture to point to the birth and growth of the church, especially when you see the visible picture of Christ, uh, of what Christ and his disciples would have had in mind. And I, many of us aren't familiar with the mustard seed, so I wanted to provide a, a picture of just how small, how incredibly and pathetically small and insignificant they appear. And we can understand why there was a proverbial saying that when something was irrelevant or so small and it's it's not a big deal, they would just make a reference to a mustard seed. It's like a mustard seed. Look at that. Just like that. I resisted my temptation to find them. I was going to tape them in the bulletin. I thought that would be cool so you could actually feel one. Didn't happen. Probably was going to get messy too. Don't know which care groups got clean up to, but you can, you can thank me later. We, we, we didn't do that. But, you, but, but we see this picture, and this was what they had in mind. They understood what a mustard seed was. They knew how small they all were. It was nothing. It was nothing, but they did know what that plant grew into. And that the simple seed produces a stunning outcome. Look at the remainder of verse 31 and verse 32. The mustard seed, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Such growth truly reflects the birth of the church and the seed of the gospel. Rapid growth was evident right from the very beginning at Pentecost when 3,000 souls were saved. And then just a few uh, days later, 5,000 more would be added. As the seed of the gospel was scattered due to great persecution, the church blossomed at Antioch, Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, and Rome. The seed flourished throughout Europe and Asia Minor, North Africa, and the entire Roman Empire. And here is where the application of this parable arrives at your doorstep, my friend. The visible church of Christ is not done growing. 
It is still extending and expanding all over the world. New branches are continuing, continuing to spring up in Czech Republic, in all of Europe, in India, in Africa, in China, in Australia. And the 1040 window is not a shrinking window. It's not going anywhere, my friends. It's there. And there's still a great need of sowers and reapers because the harvest is so plentiful. The harvest is also very ripe right here in our own backyards, is it not? None of us have to look too far before we see somebody that needs to be reconciled to God through the gospel. And grasping the magnitude of the kingdom's greatness is what ties it all together. And we see it. And it's glorious. That mustard seed. That little mustard seed, my friends, what it turns into. I have a picture of, a mustard, of, of what mustard seeds turns into. I want to thank Brody Roche for going out and uh, for, for taking the picture. No, I'm just kidding. Initially, though, when I found the picture online, I was like, is that Brody? I was like, no, no, Brody, you're much more handsome than this guy, for sure. But, you, but, but, but we see it. Look at what the seed turns into. That one, look at that plant. It's massive. I was trying to find online, like, what is something that de describes the ratio? And because the plants turn into all different shapes and sizes, right? There's no set ratio, but we know what it went from. Go back to that. Go back to the previous slide. We know what it went from. And so in your heart, you might wrestle with the fact when, when, it, when you have the opportunity to share the gospel that it seems like maybe something's small. It doesn't seem like it's so significant at the moment. Right? I, I've, I've been there. In my own heart. And, and lost sight of the grandeur, the, 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 the majesty, the, the, the awesome power of God through the message of the gospel. And that if we'll share it and that we'll preach it, we will see results. That as we grasp the, the mystery of growth... And as we grasp the magnitude of God's kingdom, it's, it's a whole harvest. Sometimes we get so short-sighted when we think about, so, you know, just us sharing the gospel with one other person. It, it puts us within this box. But let me tell you something. Right now, someone is sharing the gospel with someone. Let me tell you something else. Right now, somebody is sharing the gospel with someone. Let me, let me tell you again. Right now, somebody is sharing the gospel with someone. You see that? It is going forth. And so I have to ask you, my friend, I need to challenge my own heart, and I'm with you. We, we, we all fall short, but we, we gather together as a church family, as an assembly, so that we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds and be reminded of these truths, that we don't miss them. Are you, well, how many times, if I could ask you to ask, answer this question in your own mind, how many times will you share the gospel in 2016? Just think about that. 
And if you're like a lot of people, you haven't thought about it, right? I've said it before, we, we aim at nothing, we hit it every time. But put it in our sights. Make a commitment in your heart that you are not going to let one week pass that you don't share the gospel at least one time in 2016. 52 weeks. 52 opportunities. Just right there. Twice. 104 times. Of course, we're led by the Spirit in, in the things that we do, but God wants us to see and, and grasp the magnitude of the kingdom's greatness. And this is why it's so important to do an excursus on the kingdom of God and to understand really all that's taking place so that we see the big picture. It is all going somewhere. And my friends, it's even bigger than the church and the church age. Of course, we should praise God for his master plan, right? Because the church age is how he had us grafted in as it relates to salvation. But it is all pointing to something future, right? When Jesus Christ rules on the Davidic throne and the, the, the church is raptured, that we will be with him, that Gentiles will be gathered around him in the host. And I'm almost certain that in that moment in time, when, when we see just the magnitude and the introduction of Christ's glory in the kingdom, we'll, we'll, we'll say, gosh, I wish I would have shared more. I wish I would have shared the message more. I wish I, I, to him all majesty ascribe. I wish I would have done it more. And what a privilege that God in his timing would allow us to have this opportunity that we, we can be prepared. And we, we don't have to have regret. You don't have to have regret. It just challenges our commitment. And it connects us to the reality of God's kingdom blueprints. I want to close with this J.C. Ryle quote. He says, Let us leave this parable with a resolution never to despise any movement or instrumentality in the church of Christ because at first it was weak and small. Let us remember the manger of Bethlehem and learn wisdom. The name of him who lay there, a helpless infant, is now known all over the globe. The little seed which was planted in the day when Jesus was born has become a great tree, and we ourselves are rejoicing under its shade. Let it be a settled principle in our faith, never to despise the day of small things. He quotes Zechariah 4.10. Listen to this. One child may be the beginning of a flourishing school. One conversion the beginning of a mighty church. One word, the beginning of some blessed Christian enterprise. One seed, the beginning of a rich harvest of souls. End quote. We don't know what he's going to do. We don't know what he's going to do, but you know what? Church history teaches us a lesson that he does great things. He does awesome 
and great things, and he uses us as instruments in his hands. And if I can just expand on Ryle's quote, let us leave both of these parables with the resolution to grasp the mystery of the kingdom's growth and to grasp the magnitude of the kingdom's greatness so that we continue to praise God for his master plan and our inclusion in it. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, may your master plan stir our hearts to praise you. You have been faithful to provide leadership from generation to generation. And Father, what a tremendous privilege it is just to take a step back. All of us are, are short-sighted. And Father, it's hard for us to stay fixed on the, the big picture. And yet, if you continue to be the object of our faith and of our focus, and we continue to cultivate a big view of who you are, it will help us to see that even the small things that you would have us do, even as we live out our lives of discipleship and evangelism, that there are great and mighty things that you will do. And Father, as it relates to 2016, I don't know what, I don't know what the future holds for our church as it relates to seeing additional branches grow. We love the Denny's. We love the ministry of Czech Republic. I pray that you give us clarity in, in how we can continue to encourage them and that ministry. That you would also expand our vision and our horizon to see perhaps even other parts of the world where the need is so great. And even with that outward focus that we would not forget about our own backyards, that we wouldn't forget about our Muslim neighbor and our coworkers and people who don't know the truth, who aren't born again. Father, I pray that you would continue to use us. Help us to shine the spotlight of truth on the glorious gospel that you're a holy God, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that only through Jesus Christ can someone be reconciled to you by faith and repentance, that they would repent of their sin of unbelief and turn and trust in Christ. I pray, Father, that if there's someone here today that is not committed, that just even in the provision of hearing this message, they would see the greatness and the excitement of being included in your plan. And that would have them reach this day for your forgiveness and your mercy and grace extended from Christ to them this day. And Father, we just pray that you'll continue to guide and direct. We want to commit our works to you and we know that you'll establish our plans. And oftentimes we don't know what those look like or we can't see with clarity, but we know that you have it all figured out for even the good works that you have prepared in advance, we get to walk in. We pray again that you'll continue to bless us as a church family as we grow. 
We ask that you'll bless the remainder of our morning and our fellowship. We give you all thanks and praise for your kingdom and for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.